Buonasera! My name is Marcello. I am a tour leader with Explore. Ciao! Come, follow me. Behind this 200-year-old gate is the best view of one of Rome's finest fountains. Ah, oh, bellissima! Look at the Renaissance detail, the sunlight in the bronze! Not everyone knows about Turtle Fountain, but you will if you explore. Search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel, explore. Hello, I'm Miranda Sawyer and I've got some news about the news. By popular demand, Paper Cuts, our brilliant podcast where we look at the madness and majesty of the daily press, is going five days a week. That means you can hear my hilarious guests getting into the obsessions, the weirdness and occasionally the triumphs of the great British press every day from Monday to Friday. That's Papercuts, now out mid-morning, every weekday. Follow us now on your favourite podcast app. Papercuts, we read the papers so you don't have to. Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your need-to-know on news and politics, seven days a week. I'm Seth Tevel. North Korea's dictator Kim Jong-un recently made a pact with Vladimir Putin to support Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. The North Korean regime is noted for its brutality, with widespread poverty bordering on serfdom, starvation and mass killings, all the while the regime puts on military displays that are a throwback to the Soviet dictatorships. And meanwhile, the supreme leader plays computer games on Steam in his palace. Anyone who isn't the supreme leader seems to live in constant fear. Here to shed some light on this brutal regime is Bradley Hope, award-winning journalist and author. His book is The Rebel and the Kingdom, and it's the true story of the secret mission to overthrow the North Korean regime, and it lifts the lid on attempts to smuggle refugees out of North Korea. Welcome to The Bunker, Bradley. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here again. Indeed. Your book traces the story of a young Yale graduate, Adrian Hong, who gets involved in North Korea. How did you first come across Adrian? During the Arab Spring, I was traveling, you know, between all the different countries covering those stories. And I wrote a story in Libya about a young 18-year-old college student who had come to Libya to join the rebels on his spring break. And um, this happens in journalism a lot, but the kind of silliest story you write becomes the most popular one. And this young guy was it was Korean-American. And so when I wrote the story, it went viral all around the world. And I got an email from Adrian Hong. And he was. He said, I, "I actually happen to be in Libya. I, you know, I'm a little bit worried about this kid, and I'd like to help him get home." And that was the beginning of our relationship. And I was super curious about who is this guy, you know, in Libya with a Korean name and American accent. And that was kind of where it all began. Take us forward in terms of uh, what he started to do on this. So at first, I wondered if he was like a spy or something, because he was he was kind of dapper and he was just wandering around <laughs> sort of war torn capitals. He kind of even kind of gave off an air of being wealthy and just a kind of international man about the world, always wearing a suit. So, you know, looked really sharp. But what I learned over time as I got to know him better and I would meet him from time to time over many years before any of this happened. He began to share with me, you know, his passion for helping the North Korean people. He obviously, he has Korean heritage, but he always had a kind of spy-like aspect to him, which was addictive to spend time with him because he always had information about things that were even far afield from North Korea. He just was traveling and meeting so many people and had so many contacts around the world that was useful. But what he was doing in the background was he had gone from university being a sort of campus activist 
to essentially, it's almost a path of radicalization in a sense, because he went from having protests and, you know, these things called die-ins where you lay on the ground and, and act like you're dead to try to get attention to causes, in, in this case, North Korea. And then he went from that to becoming much more kinetic and much more involved in the actual activities itself of helping people in North Korea and putting himself at risk. So that started off with um, helping North Korean escapees navigate across China and to find their way out of China. And he managed to get a, a few people out to the United States. And then on a subsequent trip, he was arrested and actually barely got out after a couple of weeks. And then as things went on, he, he created an organization that was creating blueprints for the sort of the day after North Korea fell, like presuming that that day was mm -hmm. coming any minute now. Mm -hmm. He was looking at things like World War II experience of the liberation of Holocaust survivors and understanding what do you do with somebody who's been starved for a decade up to how do you get the power supply stable and how do you free up the telecom network? And then in the final days, unbeknownst to me at the time, he had really taken on this sort of almost like an international spy master role. Mm. He had created an underground railroad for high-level diplomats of North Korea to escape. And in escaping to aid mm -hmm. a bigger cause, which was to essentially undermine and eventually topple the North Korean regime. And so he went on that long journey. So what do you think is our fascination with North Korea? Um, is it because it's a perfectly preserved totalitarian regime with all the trappings? Or is it because we feel that they're a threat to us or, or something else? Well, I suppose over time, increasingly, they have emerged as a real threat. I mean, obviously, they're a nuclear power. Their technology is remarkably effective, you know, despite what you would think would be the obstacles to doing that. You know, they're not really part of the global economy, you know, getting supplies in there, even just having the science, you would think that they would struggle, but they, North Korea always come, somehow manages to impress us as being a much more able adversary than you, you would think. Mm. On the other hand, I do think for the average person, it's just this glimpse into a, an alien world. It feels like an alien world compared to, you know, London or New York or wherever. And it's, it's kind of a, a living encapsulation of this kind of 1984 environment. Mm. I, I remember watching one of the British programs when he went there and, and just the fascination with this eerie music that's played every single morning. That's, that's a, it's an, an ode to Kim Jong-il, the wow. father of Kim Jong-un. And it's this kind of the most haunting music that's played from loudspeakers the way you would play the call to prayer in Cairo or something. Wow. And you mentioned Adrian Hong ferrying these escapees from North Korea to safety. How did it happen? I mean, the obstacles must be immense. So interestingly, nobody from North Korea ever can escape South, despite there being this long border with South Korea, despite the fact that South Korea would give them a passport upon arrival, because they believe that all Koreans are one people, so they're happy to accept them. But that's such a fortified and mined and dangerously guarded border that no one escapes that way. Everyone escapes via China. And then there's a whole network of safe houses, some of them run by churches and religious groups, some of them not, that essentially provide them haven. And then the real journey begins from those border havens to places like Mongolia and all the countries that essentially border China are possible vectors back to South Korea or to the West. They essentially go on these extremely dangerous long journeys all across China, trying to blend in as best they can, despite the fact that they know very little about China or Chinese culture or anything about modernity to some extent. And then once they get to those countries, they're able to find their way to either the United Nations or to a South Korean embassy 
that helps them get to the next stage. It's extraordinary. We tend to think of North Korea as this all-powerful regime. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that there is no resistance, because there clearly is, but how well expressed is the opposition to the Kim regime? There's very little known about the existence of any resistance, mm -hmm. because the North Korean state has evolved over time, over decades, over generations, mm. to be so good at this, mm. to be so good at controlling its population every waking minute to keep them working all the time. It's, it's an exhausting place to live because not only are you working hard all day, but there's kind of required homework. You know, in the evenings, you have to attend meetings that where you, you have to point out people's, uh, where they've flagged in terms of their adherence to orthodoxy. You know, so it's a place where you're always exhausted for the vast majority of people always underfed and any single act of resistance is punished so severely that not only are you condemning yourself to life in a prison camp, but also every generation of your family going forward, mm. because they have a system there that essentially ranks you. And it's very easy to go down and it's very almost impossible to go up. And so, you know, any kind of act mm. th that you might pull off, you're essentially saying, my grandparents, my children, my uncles, my aunts, my sisters, my brothers, all of you can be thrown in prison together for the single act of one person. So could you shed some light maybe on how the point of contact is first made with somebody who, you know, wants to go onto this underground railroad, as it were? So this group that Adrian created called Free Joseon, they gained attention because they helped the son of Kim Jong-nam, the man that was assassinated in Kuala Lumpur mm -hmm. by North Korean agents. Free Joseon rescued Kim Jong Nam's son, daughter, and wife. They, they helped them get to safety from Macau, where they had been living. And they got kind of internationally recognized. Like some of their videos, their logo was broadcast on CNN. And so they had a website where there was a way to contact them and, you know, safe means to contact them. They also just through Adrian had a really strong connection to the North Korean international community. So that means, like, for example, a defector he still has ways to be in touch with his old colleagues or they have a way to be in touch with him, you know? So it, it's a variety of means. Some of them come through a kind of an anonymous letterbox and then some of them come through connections. You mentioned the uh, the case of Kim Jong-nam. I mean, there's a question as to, you know, with his having been assassinated, obviously. How safe are North Koreans once they get outside the regime? I think the whole purpose of that assassination was to broadcast to all North Koreans and, and to the wider world that North Korea can strike and, and kill people in the most kind of bone chilling way. Mm. You know, it's kind of, it's a very Putin-esque thing to want people to know that you did it in this very particular, almost elaborate way. Mm -hmm. You know, so in this case, they're using uh, a nerve agent, you know, a chemical weapon. Obviously, uh, Putin has done similar things. So I think that's the idea. And it's very much as much about actually being seen to do it and being seen to defy the international order in that way, presumably. Yeah, exactly. And, and just to show you that you're probably never safe if you try to go against the North Korean regime. The North Korean regime has a long reach. They want people to feel that way. But if we look at the Putin regime as a, an example and a comparison to that, there are many cases, I mean, probably in the dozens of you know, killings that have been ascribed to the Russian regime under Putin. The scale is somewhat less here. We're dealing with North Korea and their reach. Yeah, far less. I think, well, th to be honest, North Korea is very effective at keeping people. The defections you hear about are very rare as well. 
And then also even the, the people escaping the country has really gone down a lot over time because they've just gotten better and better at policing those borders and just essentially shooting anyone who tries to escape or imprisoning them for a long time. So I think North Korea has just been much more effective. Russia, until more recently, was much more part of the international world, you know, and there was there's a lot more essentially targets of the of the Russian government. Namaskaram. My name is Nayad. I'm a tour leader with Explore. Come, follow me for a breakfast. You will never forget. Namaste. Because you are going to make an incredible masala dosa under the watchful eye of my mom. Kya baat hai, ma? Each home adds their special touches. Mm. But not everyone gets to join in a traditional family meal. You will if you explore. For global adventures, search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel, explore. How's it? My name is Lassetti. I'm a tour leader with Explore. Come on, let me show you something. Oh, careful. Can you see it? Oh, trust me. It can see you. There, between the trees. It's not every day you get to see a rhino on a walk. I guess not everyone is taken to the right places. But you will be if you explore. For global adventures, search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel. Explore. Now, images very much matter. That was something that came across in your book. And can you tell us a bit about the importance of showing North Koreans what life outside the regime might be like? Well, yeah, I mean, one of the tactics of these groups that are trying to help foment uprisings in North Korea, or at least to just gradually push people towards some kind of resistance, is revealing to them that the world is much different than they might know. You know, the average North Korean has definitely no access to the internet, no access to foreign media. They learn everything through state news organizations. They don't see foreigners very often, if ever, maybe only in Pyongyang, like diplomats, that sort of thing. So it's easy to see that the average North Korean has no concept at all of what life could be like other than North Korea. And so one of the tactics that these activist groups have used is they've tried to smuggle in USBs, cards with South Korean television shows, things that are decipherable because of the language, but at the same time reveal a radically different place where food is more bounteous, where like, people are more free. Being caught with those is punishable by a very severe penalty. But I think there's, there's kind of a growing collection of those USB files that people are starting to become more familiar with the outside world. And I think it's part of a longer journey, at least in the hope of these activists, to people rising up more against their their government. What are attitudes to Adrian Hong's efforts like in the West? Because I understand he's been quite a polarizing figure. Yeah, I think, you know, the the average person who's worrying and thinking about North Korea would never endorse the tactics of Adrian, which would just be considered far too radical, far too dangerous, you know, even have the the risk of putting more people in danger. That would Mm. be the kind of standard view. So Adrian is not a he's not even close to being a kind of policy person. I think he's closer to almost like a civil rights leader, you know, from the last century, where he believes that no matter how much game theory and discussions about the nuclear threat, that at the end of the day, just the only thing that matters is that 
North Korea is the place on earth where the most people are in continuous oppression than anywhere else on earth and have been so for longer than anywhere else on earth. And he, so his whole life's mission was about that only and almost willfully disregarding any other concerns, so which, which is the opposite of your average kind of think tank person who, if they are worrying about the North Korean people, are thinking about the very gradual long-term methods to bring greater freedoms to them. So that's that's kind of engaging with North Korea and, and believing that they're capable of, of subtle, slow change. Um, Adrian just never had that view. He believed that the Kim regime was rotten to the core and would always be an oppressor. And, and so he had dedicated his life to fighting it. It does seem like quite a few of these insights gleaned into North Korea in this way do depend upon skirting around the rules. I'm reminded particularly of a controversy about 10 years ago when there was a BBC Panorama special and they essentially had to give some false assurances related to the group of tourists that they were part of to to get in. Is it very much the case that we, we do depend upon these slightly roundabout ways of getting in to have any kind of insight to the regime? Oh, I think so for sure. I mean, in the case of Free Joseon, though, it goes even further, which is the things that they were doing, while morally acceptable, if you think it through, legally are very challenging to pull off because, you know, they were clearly violating certain laws in in, in the hopes of achieving a, a greater moral victory, but it put them in just tremendous danger themselves. And so that's why I think we should be grateful that people take risks to show us the truth, but also some of them just take too many risks and they and they find themselves in a place where they can't really claw their way back out. Some of these rescue attempts are absolutely extraordinary. Could you tell us about the case of the North Korean embassy in Madrid? So yeah, the, the big event that really is the downfall of Adrian and to this day means that he's on the run, you know, hiding hiding in America somewhere. So one of the problems they had is this thing, which I referred to earlier, is that if you defect, you're you're condemning your family back home to a lower ranking at best or a prison experience. And and the prison experiences in North Korea are the worst in the world that you can imagine. So they wanted to try to create confusing situations for the North Korean government. So if somebody goes missing, they didn't want them to just think they defected. So they, they were coming up with different ways. So they, there was even a case where they made it look like once somebody died, you know, and so that, that's why they disappeared. In this case, they wanted it to look like the commercial attache who, who had gotten in touch and wanted to escape with his family was kidnapped. Mm-hmm. And so they created this entire ruse for the cameras, because there's cameras everywhere inside the inside the embassy, which involved them coming in with black balaclavas and carrying fake guns that were used as movie props. So it looked like a, a band of invaders. And um, what happened was they they actually pulled it off. They got inside the embassy. You know, Adrian was at the door. He claimed to have a gift for the attaché and was allowed to sit in the entryway. And when the person that answered the door went to find the attaché, he opened the door and the men stormed in and they they kind of detained everyone and brought the attaché to the basement to start discussing what was going to happen next. But what happened was they missed a woman that was in the embassy who, in a complete blind panic, hearing South Korean accents, believed that they were all going to be killed. And she jumped off of the balcony, injured herself, was bleeding and crawled into the road and flagged down a, a, a driver. And um, eventually the police came to the front of the embassy and, and um, it caused the attaché to panic mm. and no longer 
longer want to move forward with the plans, he thought he wasn't going to be safe. And so this group of invaders was left in a very difficult position because now the police are outside. They're the person that's supposed to be rescued, doesn't want to be rescued anymore. They need to get out of the country. So they managed to escape in the embassy cars. And Adrian actually jumped out over a back wall and called an Uber. And uh, they, they actually did get out of the country, but they left behind what looked like a kidnapping crime scene. There was fake guns, there was handcuffs, and 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 the embassy staff obviously were saying that there was an attempted kidnapping, including mm-hmm. the attaché, because he couldn't say anything else, right? Because he would be in prison, you know, back home if he had admitted what had really happened. And yeah. so this this was the case that really kind of took the group down. I mean, th- of course, there's still a future for them, if maybe, but for now, so what happened next was the Spanish government identified them, brought cases against them, and the United States agreed to extradite Adrian and another one of the people that was involved. Hmm. But Adrian managed to escape before that happened and has been living on the run ever since. And then the other man, Christopher Ahn, who was really just a volunteer and who didn't even know what the mission was until he arrived that hmm. day, was arrested, has spent quite a bit of time in jail, and then now he's fighting extradition to Spain. And so... This was a case of just one mission that just went so far and had all these unintended things happen in a kind of very quick disaster. It's uh, like something out of Mission Impossible. I was going to ask about the North Korean regime more generally. I mean, its, it's internal goals are, are pretty clear. They talk of, if I've got the pronunciation right, Yucha, a sort of economic independence, and of course, of propping up the regime. But what do you make of their foreign policy goals? Uh, because Trump attempted to come up to an agreement with um, them on denuclearization. That didn't work out. What is North Korea trying to achieve in foreign policy? The way I see it, and I'm not a kind of scholar of North Korea, I'm just a journalist. And as you know, journalists don't know very much, but and then we know Nonsense. as much as we know from, from calling other people. Yeah, we call other people. But I think my view that I that over the time of spent working on this is that Korea's goal is that the Kim regime lasts and retains power over all else. Mm-hmm. And that is the core purpose of the North Korean government, is for the Kim regime to remain in power and for the people around them to remain you know, in this privileged position. Mm. There is no true ideology of any kind other than the sanctity of this family. And so everything they do, from my point of view, is, is relates to that. So when you hear people think of North Korea as the the mad dog of Asia, kind of making these provocative things, coming across as crazy and willing to press the button, that's completely intentional. They have every reason for you to think that because that's the way that they protect the Kim regime. If they didn't have that reputation, then for surely some country would have thought it was time to invade and to dismantle that regime because nobody wants you know, a crazy nuclear power on their doorstep, you know, threatening in Japan or, or threatening American allies or even China to some extent. But it's that fear, that risk that they might just press all those buttons at the same time in, in a kind of suicide mission that is core to their national security doctrine. Hmm. That reputation is needed. Even if people are sitting around unemotionally discussing this in a room, it was. It's an entirely. It's designed for people to think that they're emotional and, and irrational, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, when you see things like Trump, they saw an opportunity to gain something without losing their nuclear power. They thought this guy is so eager for a deal that we might just be able to get access to the international markets again and keep our nuclear weapons. That's what they were thinking. 
they probably weren't betting on it, but they were thinking it's possible because they, they were thinking this guy's an idiot compared to the other people who've come in here with more tough stance on us over time. And so, yeah, you just see cycles of this, you know, cycles of them coming across as the most dangerous country in the world. And then it kind of fades away and then it goes forward. And it, I think it will never change. And in, in a strange way, the only way to engage better with North Korea is to just accept that they're not going to give up their nuclear weapons. There's just no way that they would ever do that, you know. Thank you, Bradley. That's absolutely fascinating. Bradley Hope's book, The Rebel in the Kingdom, The True Story of the Secret Mission to Overthrow the North Korean Regime, is available in hardback, audiobook and Kindle, and will soon be coming out in paperback. Thank you for joining us, dear listeners. We'll be back only too soon with another edition for your delectation. And if you enjoyed the podcast, remember that you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting our ever-expanding catalogue of shows, including The Bunker, Oh God, What Now, Origin Story, Rock and Roll Politics, and of course, Paper Cuts. Thanks for listening. Until next time. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Seth Tabor. The producer was Liam Tate, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.